you have the chance to win a Spring Super Sweeps from LAist. Donate $60 for one entry to win a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Check out all the other prizes too when you donate now at laist.com sweeps. Hi, this is Larry Mantle, host of Air Talk on KPCC. Since the start of the coronavirus pandemic, we've had a daily segment on Air Talk devoted to the latest information about COVID-19. As time's gone on, we've looked at vaccines and how the virus and pandemic have affected the lives of Southern Californians. That includes doctors, nurses, epidemiologists, and other medical professionals fighting the virus on the front lines. In each episode, of this podcast, we'll speak with one of our experts on the rotating panel of AirTalk guests who will be sharing their expertise with us daily. You can also listen anytime at las.com, kpecc.org, or subscribe wherever you download podcasts. It's my pleasure to be joined by Cedars-Sinai Medical Group Infectious Disease Specialist, Dr. Catherine Lay. She also co-directs the Cedars-Sinai COVID-19 Recovery Program. So if you have questions about COVID-19, you can ask them at ATComments at kpcc.org. Please include your location and first name or call us at 866-893-KPCC. And if you particularly have questions about long COVID, then Dr. Dr. Lay is particularly uh, specializing in that. She'd be a particularly good guest for you to ask that question, as well as all the others about COVID-19. Dr. Lay, so good to have you back with us on Air Talk today. Thank you so much. I'm glad to be back. Wanted to ask you, first of all, about what we're seeing with all these cancellations, UCLA canceling its big game against University of North Carolina tomorrow in Las Vegas because of a number of positive COVID cases on the Bruins. Um, we have a Christmas Carol at the Amundsen, which has had to cancel its performances through the weekend because of positive COVID tests. The Rams, the Lakers are seeing it. I mean, it just seems like so many performances and games are now being affected by this. What's going on? I think it definitely reflects um, the, you know, that the the county is really trying to stay ahead of, you know, what we expect to be this next possible surge related to most likely Omicron. As you can be, you've been seeing across the country um, and across the world, obviously, um, cases are really starting to uh, double um, every single day, which really reflects uh, this new variant's um, high transmissibility. So I think it's reassuring in the sense that the county is really staying ahead of it um, to hopefully avoid something like another shutdown. Now, one of the things that they're closely watching is what are the symptoms that are typically created by Omicron? And at least at this point, there is some apparently good news that it appears, again, very early results, that the symptoms are somewhat less than with the Delta variant. How much comfort do you take in the, the, early, um, the, the early information about Omicron? I think we should take any comfort we can get. <laughs> I think it's, <laughs> it's been a idea. hard couple of years. <laughs> but um, I, I think that that is not something that's unusual in pandemics, right? So it's it's we often see that as variants emerge, that they are definitely more transmissible. But, you know, knock on wood, hopefully not as um, 
not as deadly. And part of this has to do with, you know, selection for a virus that can propagate as much as it can. And if you are a virus and you happen to kill off your host, you know, very early on, it affects how well you can transmit to your next host. And so, you know, it's it's not a new concept. Um, obviously, like you said, it is a bit early on to uh, really say what the impacts of um, Omicron might be and, and uh, what the actual outcomes are and if it's better or worse or about the same as Delta or, you know, kind of more of the original strains, but certainly um, does inspire some hope. Yesterday, a panel of the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention recommended that those who had received the Johnson & Johnson vaccine get their booster with an mRNA vaccine, Pfizer or Moderna, uh, the panel citing the um, rare but but still you know, um, you know problems that J&J can uh, occasionally cause with blood clots, particularly um, for women. Your thoughts about recommending the mRNA? I'd assume when I first saw that headline, it was because of what appears to be the greater effectiveness of the mRNA vaccines. I think it's both. I think you're correct to to say that. So first of all, you know, there's emerging data now that not only is kind of cross um, vaccination. So, you know, getting you're getting J&J or Pfizer and then getting Moderna or different another different vaccine is um, not only safe, but it's also beneficial. It, it um, shows that it increases your immune response to COVID and a more um, uh, increasing the breadth of the response. But I think the, the, the safety concerns with Johnson & Johnson um, are very fair to consider. And I think that rightfully so, that was part of what made them um, come out with these new recommendations. So it's important to remember that even though there are these you know, potential increased risk of blood clots, um, it is still very, very rare, but it is, um, there's more cases than we originally thought. And it's not necessarily just in young women like was originally thought as well. So. You know, I think early on in the pandemic with limited uh, supplies and limited knowledge, it was very important to make sure that the number one thing that we were trying to achieve was uh, vaccination um, in a certain, you know, percentage of the population in order to protect everybody. But now that supply is less limited, um, we do have the luxury of saying, okay, if you're not able to, if you have a choice, to go ahead and get an mRNA vaccine that seems to be not only more effective, but more safe. You know, an interesting question I think this raises for me is how does this impact the message about vaccination in more research uh, resource-limited settings and countries. We're talking right now with Cedars-Sinai Infectious Disease Specialist, Dr. Catherine Lay. Adam in Santa Monica, you're on Air Talk. Uh, thank you. I, I had the classic symptoms of long COVID, uh, other than loss of smell, um, but the substantial improvement after having gotten vaccinated. So my questions are whether that's a pattern that doctors are seeing. Do uh, some people with long COVID clear, at least to some extent, if not completely, once vaccinated? And having been double vaccinated and boosted, um, having had it, Um, If I get a breakthrough infection, if someone in that circumstance gets a breakthrough infection, uh, is the risk of developing long COVID the same as if 
uh, I had not been vaccinated, uh, especially in the context of Omicron. Yeah, great compound question, Adam. Thank you so much, Dr. Lay. Thank you so much for that question. And I agree, also very, very good questions that I get all the time. So to answer the first part, which is, you know, this apparent um, possible response um, or reduction in long COVID symptoms after vaccination, I have heard that um, I have had many patients that have described that. Um, and I know that there was, you know, some kind of um, excitement in the news a few months ago about whether or not that was the case. I, I think that anecdotally, certainly we see it, but we also see people who just have kind of a normal response to the vaccine um, and then kind of go back to their own their long COVID symptoms. So it's not clear to me. And, and I've been waiting to see some some more data about whether or not that really plays out um, outside of just kind of anecdotal cases. Certainly, I know with the um, patient advocacy groups, uh, the long um, hauler groups, they've sent out surveys which have shown that. But of course, that is, um, you know, confounded by who decides to reply to the surveys, etc. So Anecdotally, yes. Um, I think the jury is still out about whether or not um, that is the case. I think it's a silver lining, of course, and you know, I'll, I'll take any ammunition I can get to um, get my patients to get vaccinated. So um, I think that that it's important to consider that that might be a possibility. But um, to say definitively, I definitely don't think we can say that. And I think it does also raise a lot of questions about, you know, what why that is the case and then the um, second part of, yeah sorry, was the, no i was just going to restate for those who might have just joined us second part was about um given fully vaccinated boosted having had symptoms of long COVID. what's the risk of a breakthrough with long COVID again very good question um you know obviously your risk of getting COVID is less so uh, if you're fully vaccinated and boosted, and so hopefully that in- decreases your risk of getting long COVID um, by default, but we really don't know yet what the actual impact of developing long COVID is if you have a breakthrough case despite vaccination and boosters. And that question is raised even more now because of Omicron, um, which as you know, there is some decreased efficacy from the vaccines and the boosters. Um, we have seen some breakthrough long COVID uh, cases in my clinic in patients who have been vaccinated. So it's certainly possible as if, you know, I I think that that's that's kind of expected. Anything is possible these days, it seems like. But um, I think it's just too early to say, but I think that it, it does still since it does decrease your risk of getting COVID, I still encourage you to look at it that way, that if you have a decreased risk of getting COVID, you have a decreased risk of developing long COVID. Adam, we wish you all the best of health. Thank you. Excellent question. We're at 866-893-KPCC, Cedars-Sinai's Infectious Disease Specialist, Dr. Catherine Lay is with us. This very much related to what we're talking about now. Susan in Idlewild emailed us yesterday. Dr. Robert Kim Farley from UCLA said uh, more severe cases of COVID are more likely to become long COVID, but Susan would be interested in hearing your thoughts on this, given uh, your particular expertise on long COVID? 
I actually disagree with that. We're actually, most of my patients um, did not have really severe cases of COVID. I even had um, many patients who had relatively asymptomatic cases of COVID when they first got it and then subsequently developed long COVID. So um, I don't think that that's clear at all. Um, you know, again, this is mostly anecdotal, but actually looking at the data and, and talking to other long COVID clinics across the country, we all kind of see the same thing. Only about a third of our patients were actually ill enough to be hospitalized when they first had COVID. So um, I would I would disagree with that statement. Right. Uh, and uh, I wonder, too, about your your theories on What's at play in long COVID? What What is, you think, going on with the immune system that's causing these symptoms to be so long-lasting? Such a great question. I think that the, the short answer is that we still don't really know, but there's a lot of theories about ongoing immune dysregulation. So whether that be just because the immune system was triggered and um, the initial infection is so immunogenic that it just kind of causes things to go awry, which is not you know, unique to COVID per se. Um, or the other questions are, is there an ongoing stimulus that is causing your immune system to continue to react and overreact and cause these symptoms? So then that leads to the question, are these just protein particles or viral particles that are left? Or is there an actual viral, what we call a reservoir? So some type of, you know, um, uh, area in your body or, you know, whether that be certain types of cells or an actual organ that is harboring low levels of um, live COVID virus um, that is constantly um you know, it's triggering your your immune system to react. And so there's there's ongoing research with that. I, I do, I will say I wish there were more research studies, um, but I think that with the nature of the pandemic, you know, we're constantly having to deal with new searches. And so yeah. we haven't really had the luxury of, of, of doing more research on long COVID. Wouldn't it be great if the research on long COVID actually led to a better understanding of chronic fatigue syndrome? Yes, definitely. And I, you know, you and I have talked about that on previous times I've been on this um, podcast. And, and I'm really hoping that the silver lining is that we are able to shed a little bit more light on a disease that, you know, kind of gets um, pushed aside quite a bit. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention are more firmly embracing the test-to-stay policies, allowing close contacts of students infected with COVID-19 to remain in classrooms if they test negative. Uh, They've researched such policies of uh, students in uh, the Chicago and Los Angeles areas and found that COVID-19 infections did not increase when using that approach. Uh, Director of the CDC, Dr. Rochelle Walensky, said today test to say is an encouraging public health practice to keep our children in school. The CDC's official guidance for schools has been that when someone in a school tests positive for COVID-19 infection, those who were deemed to be in close contact should stay out of school in home quarantine for 10 days. But with this announcement today, the CDC is saying both test to stay programs 
and quarantining are both equally good options for schools. Hundreds of schools have so far adopted test-to-stay policies, and several states have funded statewide test-to-stay policies to prevent students from being off campus for prolonged stretches. Dr. Lay, your thoughts about this new CDC guidance? I think it's really good news. You know, as a mother, I also have thought a lot about the impact of this pandemic on our kids who are in school. Um, And it's important to remember that, you know, our education is a public health concern as well. So we're really trying to strike a balance here between safety related to COVID and our ongoing commitment to um, educating our future generations. And I agree that there was it's it's a difficult situation. There's no straightforward answer. And this data that is coming out that I was able to briefly look at is very encouraging. Um, and, you know, looking at at least the, the Illinois study, it's saved over 8,000 in-person learning days. So wow. um, I think very, very encouraging. And it's important to say that, that both strategies, the test to stay as well as quarantine strategies, as you mentioned, are um, being endorsed by the CDC at this point. All right. L.A. County has tightened up its regulations for what they call mega events. Those are indoor or um, uh, outdoor large events. Um, Anyone who cannot provide proof of full vaccination is required to provide proof of a negative COVID test within one day for an antigen test or within two days for a PCR test. That That's of the event. Uh, children under the age of two are exempt from the rule for indoor events, and children under age five are exempt for outdoor events. Now, this is a change because previously you could go to one of these larger events with proof of a negative test within 72 hours. But now this new rule that uh, goes into effect uh, today, I believe it is, um, is um, um, requires this testing within a smaller window, which I, you know, seems to make sense, Dr. Late, just given that we are seeing this increase in cases. Exactly. Um, I think, like I said before, I think it represents a smart move from our uh, Department of Health and our county um, to really try to stay ahead of um, this new variant. And uh, I think, and I can't say, of course, for sure, but I suspect that that is is why, because of the increased um, risk of transmissibility related to Omicron. Um, So there's just a lot that we don't know. Are you concerned that we could end up with a double whammy with um, both Omicron and Delta operating simultaneously here in Southern California and leading to a significant increase that would that would really strain hospitals to um, capacity? I think it's possible. I mean, it, but it's not really necessarily a, a new concept that we have multiple variants, you know, kind of circulating at one time. Um, and really all the same protective measures are the same for both for both viruses. So, you know, I'm hoping that at least in LA County with with vaccinations and, and people who have gotten COVID already and maybe still be in that um, time period where they're still immune, that um, we're not looking at the same situation we were looking at last winter when in January when, 
you know, hospitals were just completely overrun with cases. I'm really hoping that's not the case. And again, I think the county is doing a good job by trying to um, put into place these policies earlier on um, to, to hopefully curb that. But I do know that we're, we're battling a, a little bit with, with COVID fatigue. And, and you know, I think pe more people are traveling this year. More people will be gathering um, to see their families because it's just been too long. So, yeah. um, you know, I yeah, think that's what, an added factor, but I'm hoping, I'm hoping that, that with the vaccinations that, that we will be able to control that a bit. One of the questions I get a lot because it's such a high percentage of our, our listeners are fully vaccinated and even boosted. One of the questions we're getting frequently is I'm getting together with a larger group of family members. We're going to be indoors because of the cold weather. We're all vaccinated. Most of us are boosted in addition to that. Is it still okay for us to go forward with with our gathering if if no one's particularly immunocompromised or or at high risk of complications? Um, I think that is all about risk mitigation. Again, it's so hard to to say what the near future looks like with Omicron and how transmissible it is um, amongst even vaccinated individuals. Um, you know, there are studies, of course, pre-Omicron and I think maybe even pre-Delta um, that show the decreased risk of um, infectiousness, basically, even if somebody who is fully vaccinated and boosted has COVID to spread to somebody who is co who, uh, who who is not COVID positive, but is also fully vaccinated and boosted. So, of course, the risk is much lower, um, but there is still a bit of unknown right now. So I think it really kind of depends. You, you brought up a great point by saying, you know, as long as nobody else is particularly immunocompromised. So I think taking into those factors, who you're going to be with, how long, how spread out is it going to be? How small is the place? Are you going to be wearing masks? Yeah. And, you know, what kind of uh, implementations you say before the gathering? So are all these people people who are local? Are any of them flying? Um, there's just a lot of factors to really yeah. give one answer. But, um, you know, I think these are all things to consider. Thanks for listening to this episode of COVID in LA. If you'd like to stay up to date with the latest coronavirus news, you can listen anytime at las.com, at kpecc.org, or subscribe wherever you download podcasts. See you next time and stay safe. I'm Larry Mantle. This program is made possible in part by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, a private corporation funded by the American people.